1: The Stanley Cup Final on ABC and ESPN Plus begins Saturday.
2: Welcome to Maximize Your Hunt, the podcast dedicated to those who want the most out of their hunting property. This podcast explores land management, habitat improvement, and hunting strategies that will help you maximize your time in the field. Follow along as industry professionals that live and breathe white-tailed deer share their secrets to success. And now, the founder of Whitetail Landscapes, your host, John Teter.
1: Hi, I'm John Teter Whitetail Landscapes. This is Maximize Your Hunt. Welcome back, everybody. I uh, I wanted to give uh, everybody a little bit of information on me and what's going on this year with me is I'm, I'm traveling a lot to different client properties, you know, kind of across New York, Pennsylvania, Massachusetts, New Hampshire, Ohio, you name it, in the Northeast and parts of the Midwest, that's where I'm going. Uh, But I do a lot of my work in New York, and and a lot of people have inquired, you know, how far do you travel? I've traveled, you know, out west, uh, but I like to stay in the northern latitudes. And I am taking clients in those areas. I know that's something that I don't necessarily talk about, but I am opening myself to traveling a little bit more. I've been working quite a bit more, even on the weekends. And I just kind of want to share that with everybody because I get inquiries all the time. Will you travel here or will you do this? You know, follow up with me because I am opening to, you know, looking at new areas. I don't I don't focus on the southern states. Um, those are areas that I don't have as much knowledge in. Those ecoregions are a lot different. But we have guys on the podcast that that's where they're more, you know, fluent and have more knowledge. And today we've got one of my favorite guests on, Rocky Burris from SAFR Management, and he works in the south. And you know, we're going to talk about some different strategies and tactics that he's got going on in the field. So let me get him on the line. Hey, Rocky, how are you doing? Hey, man, how's it going? Good. It's been a bit, man. What's going on in your world? I know you've been traveling a lot with clients. I've been following you. What's uh, what's going on?
2: Man, uh, just yeah, just trying to get get things planned out for all these guys. uh, Now that season's over and everybody's getting geared up to try to Get them some kind of plan to move forward through the year and and get ready for next season. So yeah, we've been been on the road uh, all the way into Virginia, and I mean I'm, I've been all over. So I uh, got got two more to go see in the next couple of days. Going to be on the road again.
1: Good, and and I'm happy you're doing the southern states because that's not where I belong. I got to stay up north in the cold, cold snow. It's uh we're we got a snowstorm going on today up in New York, and I'm excited because for whatever reason, I went out the other day and I just got covered in ticks. And sometimes this kind of suppresses the tick action up here in the North. And and that's what I'm hoping for. So let's talk a little bit about some of the things that you've been kind of observing on these client properties. You're going from client to client to client, and um, you're probably noticing a lot of mistakes, trends, issues, maybe kind of give me some information on things that you're seeing in the field.
2: Well, I mean the main thing that I'm I'm noticing is a lot of people are wanting to hold what they think they've got or or trying to gain more deer and hold deer. So uh, you can go through these properties pretty easy and see a lot of things that are missing and and then the access issues, you know, you see some of the some of the access things that you you can help them with changing and and just you know, trying to see what their habits are and 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 their complaints, you know, you kind of it kind of tells the story a lot of times on before I even walk these properties because you'll hear what they they're complaining about, and then you'll hear the way they do things, and you're like, well, I can answer a lot of questions, but let me let us me, meet face to face. So uh, it it makes it it makes it fun though to to go in and actually have answers for a lot of people that um, maybe have been doing it a long time and and. And just finally gotten stumped to where they're just okay. I, I might need another eye on this. So it just it makes it makes you feel good when you finally get to see these properties and, and have some really cool answers for them.
1: Yeah, that's that's great. You know, one thing that came up the other day. So I was cutting timber with my partner. Uh, we had a client and we were uh, putting in bedding areas, and uh, we're sitting there and we're creating kind of. Oh, trails that coordinating an area. And um, I don't typically, when I'm doing my design and layout, I don't create like sneak trails all the way in a bedding area. I create them around a bedding area and then directly through a bedding area. That's typically my design philosophy. And one of these areas that we were connecting the dots to, we we observed as normal, you know, deer bedding on a hillside, watching the hunters come into an area. So we went in there and destroyed that bedding area, moved it back. You know, they're still to, they're inclined to be in those areas, but this whole visual advantage and observation point that deer sit on these ledges and edges and look into the access points is what kills a lot of the hunts that I see. And I'm sure you're seeing the same thing. And that seems to be probably one of the more obvious things that, that I notice when I'm meeting with clients and just letting them know they're getting picked off before the hunt even starts. So that's usually a problem.
2: Yeah, I see, that, I see a lot of guys that they'll say they just stay out and just, I just stay out of this. I call this my sanctuary. I call, you know, and all, all that's great in, in a sense, but you have to know, in my opinion, you really have to know where these deer are bedding with what you have now. And if you don't really know where they're bedding, I mean, I'm not really sure how you would hunt them properly because, I mean, that's huge because once you know where they're bedding, you know how they – are surviving. And if you, if, once you pick that apart, you can trap them. You can build, build your success around that. But, but until you go in and you actually lay eyes on, Hey, here's a buck bed. Look at this. Now look, kneel down with me. Look, look at what he's looking at. He sees you every single time you pull up to the parking lot like, Oh my goodness. Yeah. And then, you know, but that stuff's not seen unless you go out and know what you're looking for. And I think that's where it helps maybe to have, you know, guys like us that are that are seeing it state after state after state, you know, finding those, those buck beds and where they really want to be. And it's something that is majestic when you find those buck beds because when you're there, you're just like, just like you said, now it makes sense why I can't kill him. Because you get his picture all the time and then when you hunt, he never shows. And well, it's because he knows how you hunt and we're creatures of habit, and we always take the same paths, and we do the same things, and they know. So it just, it's finding those things really helps.
1: Yeah, and I totally agree with almost everything you said there. The one thing I'm going to add to, you know, when we're doing layout with these client properties, you know, it's such a difference between going from a, you know, a map that I've drawn out to the actual implementation, and then creating kind of these isolated bedding areas and picking those really specific locations to kind of co-locate deer and giving them the visual advantage. I think the property we're just working on and, you know, we were tying, we basically took an acre area and cut it into these minute chunks. We created walls of cover, good flow between there, good access for maintenance and support work, and then isolated bedding area in these small little pockets, kind of adjacent to all those. And it's just, it's just fine tuning it so the flow and movement's correct. But these mature bucks are going to want to be in specific areas, and if you can't diagnose those areas, you're going to have a hard time trying to figure out the the setup. And obviously, to hunt those areas becomes even more complicated if you don't understand where they they originate. And in my case, I'm creating those areas, as are you. You're creating those opportunities for the bucks to reside in those areas, and then I'm creating the flow and movement through there. You know, again, maybe they're not huntable areas, and again, if they aren't huntable, they end up being a sanctuary, so to speak. So it's trying to decide how you're going to go after these deer. so here's my question to you tips tricks and access and that's something that I think you focus on a lot I hear guys putting up fences and using hay bales and you know I was thinking about this the other day when we were kids uh, I remember hunting deer behind big hay bales and they'd make hay bale blinds this is in like you know early 2000s you know I'm, I'm a young kid in my 20s and making these hay bale blinds and then using hay bales to you know isolate and tie you into a tree stand location I mean we're doing stuff like that a long time ago even working and going down into trenches and and deep ravines and you know stream beds and using those for access points what are the tr- tips and tricks that you're noticing on the properties that you're kind of designing and setting up what are some access tips that you have
2: well, I mean, to go in, I mean, I I will study Jim Ward a lot and uh, and I don't know if you know who he is, but he he does he's kind of the guy that I've I've implemented the traps and building building just a system like a trail system and bedding system that deer get caught up in waste too much time in and and fall for your trap. Basically is what I keep calling it with him. But what what we've I'm not going to put myself with him, but, I mean, what I've seen him do and what some of the things that I've done is is literally just try to go in and use the terrain to your advantage, obviously, right from the beginning, trying to figure out how can I slip in these areas. Once you've identified where you're really placing deer or where deer want to be, then you can really fine-tune, you know, Everything I, I like to find the access first myself. It's kind of like finding finding the deer stand spot, and then building the food plot around it. I like to build. I like to find how can I access this area, and with with the winds that deer use this area. I think that's where people make the biggest mistake is they're all so caught up in what wind can I hunt this area, and it's not necessarily and as important as what wind would the deer use this area the most. And when you find that wind, now you go and say, how can I get here with that wind in play? And then in those access trails, you know, a lot of times when we hinge them and I'll hinge those maybe a little tall and make some blocks and stuff to where you can slip in and get up in the stand and nothing can really see you, plant some screen, whatever it takes. And then sometimes you hear people saying, well, the deer used the trail that I made, so... We've kind of gone in, and and uh, I've seen Jim Moore do it. They they lay pallets, uh, double pallets, in the trail system that you go to the stand, and it kind of deters deer of walking that trail when two pallets are stacked side by side. They just don't like walking on them, so they kind of avoid that trail because you've kind of got it walled in with your hinging. And then even, you know, if, if it's like dropping down in a valley and you've got it hinged, hinged up, even if you're worried about deer entering the trail where you drop in the valley, then I've even seen it where they put gates up, you know. Just whatever it takes to kind of, you know, you could br- put you a, a piece of brush that you move every time, even though you might not want to be touching a whole ton of stuff when you're dealing with these real mature deer. But... I just, I've even used uh, what we, I don't know, y'all might call it snow fencing. I don't know, but I mean, go through and just get pallets and put fence posts in them and and ba- basically build a pallet fence yep. down in down an area that you don't want deer to. I mean, they will jump the, that pallet fence like it's nothing. But if you have a gap in that, and it's quite obvious that that gap's there, and maybe even hinge a few tops over onto the pallet fence so it makes it seem taller and all. I mean, they'll just walk through the gap and those are, you know, great, um, manipulations to, you know, cause a lot of times, sometimes that's really open ground or something and you can't find the trees to hinge. Or you can't, so you have to go out and try to invent a way to funnel deer and keep them from going in areas that you have to access.
1: Yeah. And, and these are all good points. And. You know, one thing you mentioned is Jim Ward and, and Jim Ward is on our podcast now, Rocky. I don't think you and I had talked oh. about that. Yeah. He joined our group and uh, he's, he's just started contributing and he'll have more, but like some of the tactics that you're talking about that he's employed and it sounds like you're employing some of your own kind of strategies. Mine's typically been, you know, I try to find that and I would suggest anybody do, does this, right? Go on the streets, try to find as much old woven wire fence or snow fence or anything you can get people are throwing stuff out all the time and you know, it's just a fair opportunity to get free, you know, free material and utilize it in these examples of pinching deer down, using it for screening. You know, I've seen people for screenings, they put a screening out, run a grapevine through the screening, right? It creates a nice shield. Um, Sometimes they'll take old Christmas trees. I mean, all sorts of things, uh, junk material, you know, garbage. Um, I've, I've seen almost anything you could think about to create screening. I like to create walls. And this weekend, I was cutting on Sunday, but Saturday I cut in the morning on my own property. And I'm I'm basically creating like these long walls that are very impenetrable that the deer just they do not like to travel down these tight corridors that they can't jump in and out of. And as much as I want to put fencing down there, I need access into those areas for working. Sometimes I'll create a very dense, you know, and kind of a, a pinch point or like even on a hillside down a strip in the center, I'll put really, really dense vegetation all the way up to the, you know the shrub or any low loin trees kind of on the edges and they have a tendency not to move through that switchgrass. Um, Switchgrass to me is typically a barrier and shield. So, you know, I'm using that species to limit deer movement. Um, There's a lot of ways to do that. You can use miscanthus grass, uh, miscanthus gigantus is an example uh, for screening as well. And obviously to create, you know, these walls and walls of cover can be created in a lot of different ways. We had a podcast with Jim Ward and that's the only reason I bring that up again, to kind of limit their movement and li- limit their visual advantage. Um, I'll yeah. probably talk about this more in maybe another podcast, but hillside bedding, and I'm doing a lot in different properties, well, hillside bedding is how to give them the visual advantage but limit them and thinking about how to segment hillsides. And that's been really kind of like an evolving thing for me and uh, my partner who does a lot of the the, uh, the work. Let's talk a little bit more about any other access things that you've been thinking through recently, um, not just like barriers and shields, but... You know, uh, through field edges and and things of that nature, maybe just establishing a field with corn. You know, what are things, what are some other things that you you, uh, have a tendency to employ with your clients?
2: Well, I mean, of course, uh, you know, your your tall crops like corn, (coughs) corn and sorghum and and different products like that, Egyptian wheat, all those, you know, I use that in my, my food plot technology type. Design so, uh, and those all become access screens if you need them, or you know, great ways to compartmentalize the different plots and make them hold more uh, groups of those and and just make them more daylight movement. You know, uh, I've taken and used those screens to to basically take one huge field and make three out of it, and that is all visible from the stand. You know, and that that can all you cut breaks in those screens and those deer just funnel through them. I I don't know. I just have a a great pleasure with doing my best to uh, control the movement. And I found that this may be shocking to you, but I mean, a lot of people may think this is crazy, but after the crops have come in, I've found that you can literally cut these gaps in the screen and stuff and, and take a tiller or take a disc and, and just grab that, that gap and direct the, the travel of deer with the tiller just one pass through the, you know, till up your crop, but the dirt, it, I don't know what it is about fresh dirt. And you've seen it. I know if you planted food plots and you yep. actually had to work ground, yep. I mean, it's amazing the tracks that are in the, the day you plant, you know, the day after you plant. So I've tr- I've made these trail systems on these big fields, these big ag fields that we have a hard time getting pictures We've we've made these trail systems down and pinch them all down through a bow spot or something, and then run a, a scrape tree with a camera or whatever, and just really just amazed by how single file line the deer will be walking. Anytime they're traveling, out of the food plot or in the food plot, they just walk that dirt, and it's just it's just money every time. And same with turkeys, they'll just walk right down the dirt. It can be lush clover everywhere; they'll walk the dirt anytime they're on the move. So it's pretty neat to. Uh, to just control the movement like that with all that screening and access.
1: Yeah, that's that's great. Um, I've got a separate question for you, and this is actually something that we talked to Jim about when he was on the podcast, and I want your opinion on this. You know, creating I guess barriers on the edge of your food plots. A lot of people. We were talking about what I call parallel edge feathering, basically you your edge feathering instead of dropping trees out into your good soil, dropping them kind of down the line or in parallel or parallel to the, uh, the field edge. And we we're talking about creating screening and then we we're talking about the porosity or like the transparency, the ability for deer to see through that or jump through that. And a lot of times, and I'm going to give my opinion on this real quick, I've been doing it in sections. So a section of like 30 yards, then a space, 30 yards in a space. Now that would coalesce or like correlate with maybe the trail movement. And like you were talking earlier about sending them through a bridge gap or what have you, you know, through some screening. How do you, like, what's your opinion on the properties that you work on with the, the edges? How do you work those edges where? They're limiting maybe visual or they're eliminating access. What what do you have a tendency to do on on either your own property or client properties?
2: I personally do not like the deer to be able to see the whole field from the woods. I mean, if we're, if we're trying to, if I'm trying to see, I deal with a lot of gun hunters. So, and a lot of the gun hunters like sitting in these nice condo blinds in the heat and, and watch, watch the food plots. Well, you know, as well as I do, we're dealing with 20% of the deer's diet, not 80, like in the timber. And then you're dealing with, you know, probably I would, without knowing the true numbers, but I would say maybe 10% at the most of the daylight movement of a mature deer, you know, and and you're talking, that's where people really enjoy sitting and watching deer and, and all that. So when it comes to the field, I can't let these big mature bucks cruise down into the field and just gaze the field the whole time and feel safe and feel like they know everything's going on. So I like to try to either screen, I'll feather the edge, like you're talking about, you know, the timber, depending on the terrain. You know, sometimes these fields are up on top and they kind of drop off. And when that happens, you know, the visual's not really there until he gets up to the close to the edge. So then I'll hinge that, I'll feather that edge and, and stack my does. I, my, the biggest thing I feel like is you really just, the screening and all that and not letting them see everything uh, causes them to want to see in the food plots, in my opinion, and makes them work the food plots. Because when they get in my food plots, it's not always just I pop in and I can see 150 yards. Like I'm, I'm trying to make, make it where I need to travel the food plot to get out of the food plot even. So like my screenings will be, I got a gap, two gaps on the left side. And when they enter those gaps, my opposite side gap is definitely not dead across from it. I put it on down the field sure, and then, so then that deer has to actually enter the field, see who's in it. Nobody's in it that he's caring for in order for him to leave. He has to travel my field. And gives me way more chances of looking at him and and getting a chance to uh, decide if I'm going to take him or get a shot. So that those little things I try to do on my field edges, but the feathered edge stuff. I mean, it, you just stacking those does right behind that, and basically, I mean, anybody that kind of knows a little bit about bedding areas, those they it's like a layered effect, uh, and you have your does, and then the back the next layer will be your bucks. Well. And, you know, on an ideal, you know, platform. But so if I pull my doughs all the way up to my food, then it opens up that back layer that they might have occupied for my bucks. And so then they're getting there that much earlier to these food sources. So, you know, all that, all that just helps. I, I mean, tremendously as far as how early, I mean, that's what I do for myself. And to find success for myself, you know, I'm, I'm just stacking my does as tight as I can to my food and making sure my ex my entrance is is on the opposite of what they would catch, you know. So I, I kind of know where I, they should be, and I know where my wind can never hit, and I know where they should be able to visually see and not see, and that's how I use it for access.
1: So you create probably some dead zones around your access points, and how do you kind of – diagnose those and is it really related to where the deer naturally want to be you enhance their your their areas of interest their focal points and then you lead them obviously to slaughter or lead them to a food source or lead them into a transition area we've talked about the traps with you the buck trap that was a really popular pod uh, podcast episode if anybody had listened to that that I thought that was a really good one but these access and dead zones you're starting to lose property as a result of that you you obviously can't leverage every single inch of it I mean, what's your philosophy there? Because I, I try to I try to make dead zones and I do them just based on the natural state of things. Like, you know, there could be a house, right? As an example, that creates kind of a barrier or obviously because of the human activity limited interest, you know, I'm leveraging as much of those, you know, I guess areas similar to that and, and just kind of bouncing off those to, to build like my access points. Sometimes train features will allow that. Like, what do you, Kind of diagnosing when you're looking at the landscapes, you know, from from that perspective.
2: Well, I mean, for sure, when I'm on a property, if I if I can notice the actual places that they want to be, that I, I'm not always, I mean, almost never trying to take them out of those areas. I'm trying to figure out how I can get around and and not disturb and and kill them from those situations where they already have felt comfortable but there are situations like you said earlier that where a deer is watching you or a deer is not necessarily watching you but knows how to stay alive by bedding where he is and and he he sees the access that you've already got or the main access that you can even have and those deer need to be displaced but i just really feel like that a lot of the properties i walk on just don't have the bedding like, they just don't have it. And and they, for one thing, the, the clients really don't maybe know how to find the bedding. And so when we find some, they're kind of shocked to where they are. And they're like, oh, my gosh, they can see us from here or whatever. But then I was like, yeah, but, you know, there's people that access through the middle. There's people that access on the tops of the ridges. There's, there's all kinds of ways they access. But when I'm done with the plan, like almost always, we've cut their stands in half the access is like you can have all this access to maintain and, and enjoy your property, but when we're getting close to deer season and when things are need to silent down and and, the, and let the deer move in and all that, then their access is always just tippy-toed in from the corners or whatever, however I can try to design it. So I just, I mean, I found some of the biggest deer, uh, even for myself, that will be, in places like you're talking, like even even where you feel like there, you should be safe, like by the houses, up by the road. I mean, just places like that because they've learned that people drive right by them and go hunting every day and never even looking there. And they just, I've killed the biggest buck with my bow probably 30 yards off of main road because he, and it was by our front gate but I just got lucky and put a camera in that corner and caught a picture and slipped in there at 1130 that night and killed him the next morning. Hmm. And I mean, it was the wildest still, but I mean, that was still today. Biggest Tennessee, uh, buck with a bow. I killed him at seven yards. I mean, it, he just came in there to bed right against the road. It was the wildest thing, but, like Jim will say on a lot of his stuff, I mean, those, those bigger deer aren't necessarily in their primary bedding till eight or eight 30 at the earliest, you know? So when you see that, I mean, you're really dealing with two stages of bedding, you know, and that's where you got to pay attention. That's why I think the screening on the plots and all this stuff helps because the least, the least amount of ways they can catch you on your access, the better.
1: Yeah. Yeah, no, a lot of good information in there. If people are paying attention to exactly what Rocky's saying, I mean, you've got to be a little bit more nimble. And, you know, I've worked on properties where we've gone with mulchers and they, it was too thick. We made it less dense and then we worked with the existing vegetation and improved the bedding to move these dairy, deer out of these obvious areas like you're talking about, buy houses, by roads where they have advantages they know that they're safe in those locations but giving them more kind of opportunities in other areas and amplifying their interest in that property we just worked on that we did mulching a mulching project on that in concert with kind of managing the existing vegetation will pull deer out of those other areas and the question is do you take the cover away in those other areas or do you make it too thick do you limit their you know interest in those areas and a lot of it depends on are using it for screening you know what is its purpose in the landscape, and you're going to have to kind of define that. I want to bounce over to data observation because that's another piece where you excel at is taking data in, and we're talking about land setup, access, all these other things, but getting data and trail camera tricks—you're good at that. That's what you you've taught your clients to do, and that's what you've used to kind of build your success. Like we just talked about the deer you killed, you know, by your house. So, kind of get into some of the details of some trail camera tricks that you've been using, you know, or suggesting with your clients that that people would benefit from.
2: Well, I mean, I, I'm a firm believer in creating opportunity when it comes to, to pictures and getting photos of deer. And I don't, I normally never, I used to do this. I used to set cameras up on field edges and I used to set cameras up on, uh, random scrapes I find in the woods, and I used to set scrapes up, you know, different things. I used to s- just set cameras up where I thought I would catch a deer, and now I've I've kind of gotten down to where I get in these areas that, you know, with the cell cameras, I really feel like that's a huge help because I can get into these bedding areas that I know deer are in, and I can set up. If I haven't already gone in and just naturally built this crazy good trap that, that deer are bedding in here and the only way they can travel is through this camera you know those those become almost easy and and getting those deer is pretty easy but when it comes to say if you just let me hunt one of your properties and I was going to go in and tell you some tricks how I get pictures I mean I would have to go in and try to find where I can find a, a decent little heavy trail system that two or three trails may be hit together and stuff. And then I would go in and try to create this, this uh, mock scrape that, that I hang cedar limbs almost always in. Um, if it's early and I'm setting up, cause I set up a lot of cameras on a lot of properties. So if it's too early and it's too warm, I'll do oak limbs and like there is something internally wrong with these deer, when they see a limb pointing to the ground, they go straight to it to scrape. So I just have noticed that from hunting some of the pine country, and we have these storms and it breaks pine limbs, and we'll have a pine limb fall out of the tree and just wedge on a limb, on just a dead limb, and it'll be pointing straight to the ground, and instantly there'll be a scrape under it the next time I see it. And I I noticed it two or three times, so then I started copying that with, with the cedar limbs, because it's visual, like our woods aren't, aren't full of cedars. So, you know, if your woods were full of cedars, maybe I would go with the oak limb because it'd be a big brown patch in the middle of the green, you know, but it would, I think you have to have something obviously that's holding, holding its leaves like an evergreen or, you know, cypress, a cedar, and even the oaks that hold their leaves. Uh, and, and I zip tie those things chest high and I'll do this oversized scrape and I'll either urinate in it or leave it myself. I just don't. I don't necessarily buy all the the stuff on the, on online. You could buy that stuff; it works too. I mean, it works the same. But those I almost do that on every single camera I put out. And you might think I'm crazy, but I mean, if it's a single trail, I'll have a scrape on it because I want the buck pictures. I don't really care for a buck to walk by my camera at 20 yards. And I don't get his picture. So if he sees that limb, though, it's pulling him just to, just out of his normal routine enough. It's almost like a corn pile. I mean, it, he will have to hit it. it is something in their system. They cannot pass it. They'll smell it. They'll hit it or at least check the ground, and I'll get their picture. So that's one huge thing that I always do with my cameras. And it really helps me keep the tabs on the bucks, especially when they enter the areas my traps and stuff, I'll have a scrape right in the middle of that trap and it, and it would be a bedding area trap. So I know when he's in the bedding area and if I, you can kind of pay attention to the time of day that he hits these cameras. I mean, if they cross your food plot and hit one of your scrapes and it's like eight o'clock in the morning, you can bet he's bedded very close.
1: And Rocky, I got a question with you about your actual trail camera. Like, so the, the, the ability to track these deer to either social zones or some type of scrape hub, but like, what, like, are they high? Or are they low? It probably depends on the location specifically Our north, south, like people, people have a tendency to, you know, get tied up in, in that, you know, that type of uh, information. I, I know one thing I'll say in the north, you know, because sometime in November, our winds really shift you know, we get hard north or northwest winds. My cameras are generally facing south, typically southeast. If, you know that's that's the ideal state and so that that will determine my trail camera's location but at the same point I got to get data so sometimes yeah. I'm thinking about creating trail systems in order to get that data in concert with the camera and the time of year that they're using so that's getting really specific for some people what about you like what are things like those specific things like are you setting up high or low you know pitch of the camera Th- those just basic things cuz i think people kind of wonder what what you're doing
2: well I'm bad about wanting a real pretty picture. (laughs) So, (laughs) so I, I, I do set too many cameras. I I just posted something. It's not a week ago about this as I'm put, I'm bad about it myself, but I do put too many cameras right in their face. And, and I have, you know, my big deer, they, the ones, the ones that are okay with it, I get their pictures multiple times and it's not a big deal, but there's always a, one big deer or two big deer that are like roamers or really shy or, you know, they just all have different personalities. So they'll, they'll shy away from him. They'll get, you'll get one picture of him and you'll be like, oh, I don't know where he went, but it's because he knows to dodge that negative read. He read that the camera as being something negative to him, but I've had really good success putting them almost like six inches off the ground, shooting up under those scrape limbs, shooting out into the open area and I mean they almost never look down and it has a lot to do in my opinion it has a lot to do with their eyesight is they have a different type pupil than we do and they see blurry high and low so I will put cameras if it's out in the open and I can't get cover or it's not under a scrape I will put them up high six to seven foot highs I can reach you know and try to angle them down and the only issue with that is when you go show your buddies the pictures, he doesn't look as big. So (laughs) when you, when you do it down low, he looks extra big. So sometimes I stick with the low ones, but we don't have the snow like you guys might, or you guys do have and all that. So it kind of, those little different, you know, if you're in the bottom you might want to think about it flooding, you know, there's all kinds of reasons why I do different levels, but you know, if you want it, I did this one whole year. As I said, I'm not going to hang a camera under six foot and I did a whole year of that and you'd be surprised I probably caught 10 or 10 or more deer uh, bucks on that property than I did the year before and I feel like it was because of that and I know for a fact I had maybe three deer in the entire season that even looked up at the camera and I know multiple people walked by cameras that never had a clue that the camera was there so when you hang them high it is Probably the best move, in my opinion, uh, to take the total stress of of cameras and and people and your your intrusion out. A lot of my my bed cameras are high. Uh, I just don't like them knowing that I was in there, so I usually do them high. But the ones that are out in travel corridors and scrape lines and different things where I think deer are traveling, you know, I'll. I'll I'm guilty of putting them right in their
1: face <laughs> yeah no and I am very similar to you and Perry, you know Perry's been on this right you've talked to Perry we've been on together you know they, they do the same thing on the jury farms right they, they've got them right in their face and then I do like the idea of having them you know slightly elevated in the bedding areas those are typically soaker cameras are going to be there for some time you know so I'm I'm actually I I, I employ the same strategy as you that's that's uh, interesting yeah. All right. So we're getting towards the end of our time. Um, anything else you want to add today? Uh, great information. Uh, anything personally with you that's going on that's important?
2: Oh, just that I shot that monster buck. Finally. Oh. Did you see him yeah, at I the did. end?
1: Yes, I did. I did. How <laughs> many bucks? Oh, you were you were like it, we had the we had the call and it's you know it was like oh you know it's season's tough. stuff. You would already killed a couple of studs and then you're like well you know and then you shoot the monster and I'm like oh my goodness, you know, it's, you're not, you don't surprise me, you know, it's, you're Well, I finally caught up the the old -old eight-year-old (laughs) man.
2: i tell you, it was, uh, it was kind of cool to finally pull it off with him, but hated that he only had four points.
1: (laughs) That had to be the biggest four-point buck I have ever seen, period. And, and actually probably the picture we should use for this, this podcast so folks can see it, that thing is just incredible. That, that is Incredible. I tell
2: you, you would be surprised how many people have talked to me about a four-point. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> I, I had I had somebody call me today, and he said, Man, I saw that monster four-point you shot. That thing was massive. That was awesome. buck." I'm like, I never would have thought I'd have these conversations, but I did. <laughs> <laughs> but, I mean, he may or may not be the the new standing record and four point, but I guarantee he's <laughs> in the top two or three. So he's pretty impressive. But. Yeah.
1: Yeah. You don't shoot a four point like that every day. That's, that was an incredible, incredible deer. Yeah. Congratulations on that. I, I saw that post and uh yeah, we'll probably use that as the pictorial for this thing. And, you know, nice. and, and I'm sure that was a, a great hunt. We'll uh we'll save that for our next podcast. We'll talk about, you know, more client work that you're doing and, and uh, a little bit more about some of the hunting tactics, strategies that that you got going on. And uh, I'm interested to see what deer you're planning for next year, because I know you're always thinking ahead.
2: Oh, yeah, I got a few. Yeah,
1: absolutely. All right, brother, it was good talking to you, good catching up. It's been a bit for us, so uh, we'll talk again soon. Thanks for being on.
2: Yeah, God bless. Thanks, man.
1: See you, Rocky. Bye. Maximize Your
2: Hunt is a production of Whitetail Landscapes, for more information on how John Teeter and his team of experts can help you maximize your hunt, check out
1: whitetaillandscapes.com.